Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Williams about her new book, Appetite and Its Discontents, Science, Medicine, and the Urge to Eat, from 1750 to 1950. Um, Williams writes that appetite is like love or pain or anything that is fundamentally human, integral to our whole being. Yet between 1750 and 1950, it also became an object of science and struggles over how to define and study and regulate appetite still persist today, as she tells us in this intricate history. Um, Elizabeth Williams, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you. Okay. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm a retired professor now uh, from Oklahoma State University, where I taught in the uh, history department for about 30 years. Um, And I taught uh, general European history there, but I also taught history of medicine uh, for the last 20 years or so. Um, And I retired in part so that I could finish up this book, which uh, was with me for many years. I started out my career at Indiana University and took my PhD there. I was principally interested at that point in uh, the history of anthropology, and I worked on the history of race theory. I got interested in the history of medicine because a lot of the anthropologists that I worked on in the French context, 19th century, uh, were physicians. And at first that seemed strange to me, and I began to investigate why it was that physicians played such an important part in uh, anthropology and especially in the formulation of uh, race theory. And so from there, I got into the history of medicine and got uh, uh, very interested in what really has been my main thematic concern for a long time, and that is Uh, what the French call the relations between the physical and the moral, uh, body-mind relations in relation to um, various uh, disease formations, forms of pathology. And this particular um, set of issues that I take up in Appetite and Its Discontents is something I began to study a long time ago, uh, about 17 years ago, uh, and it it focuses basically on the problem of the relation between the gut and the mind or the brain, um, specifically in relation to uh, eating. And in that fashion, I, I came to the problematic of what are now called eating disorders. And that's uh, an important part of the study as well, along with the fundamentals of the science. You write uh 
A good claim can be made that Western patterns of eating and drinking changed more dramatically in the 18th century than at any other historical moment. So could, could you tell us a little bit about how habits of ingestion changed and what the changes had to do with how appetite was perceived um, in the time period you're writing about? Yes. Um, the most important issue that I take up in that respect, uh, the changes of the 18th century, have to do with the importation and ever uh, greater consumption of luxury foods as they're thought about. This is something that got underway really from the uh, time of the Columbian Exchange, but it becomes something that's much more widespread in the 18th century. And there was a great deal of concern among medical people and social observers generally about the effect on the both mind and body of people consuming foods that were um, exotic, different from what they had eaten in the past, and that had an assortment of um, effects that were not part of the customary uh, European diet, specifically, for example, uh, the effects of coffee and tea and sugar. And this opens up a um, discourse during the Enlightenment of what the dangers were of people ingesting, not to meet basic physiological requirements, but to experience pleasure. And the idea, of course, eating always brought pleasures of one kind and another, um, or at least potentially could, but the fear was that basic needs would be crowded out by the consumption of things that had some kind of um, exciting effect. So there sets in a conflict or a discussion about the potential conflict between need and desire, which becomes a big uh, issue throughout the Enlightenment and uh, carries on from that point forward in a largely secular vein. Of course, the dangers of bodily pleasures had long been a theme in religious discussions, but now this is adapted into the world of science and medicine and becomes something that is the subject of um, worry, mounting anxiety, and uh, constant admonition. Let's, let's talk about the, um, the, I, the mechanists and the vitalists and um, a little bit about their tension and, and how, what, what did these step camps believe? And then how did, um, how did their definitions of appetite relate to, um, to pleasure, desire, hunger? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the mechanist vitalist contest is uh, something that sets in uh, from roughly the 1730s, 1740s. Mechanism, the idea of the body uh, as a machine, 
of course, has a number of different sources uh, on the continent. The most important was Cartesian thought. Uh, but there are other important um, theorists who liken the body to a machine and uh, believe that its uh, various functions can be quantified. Vitalists are uh, the camp that returns to the notion that was um, prominent in the ancient world that body functions and life in general are propelled, motivated by either a unitary vital principle or a cluster of vital forces that were responsible for specific functions such as digestion. So there was a digestive force and assimilative force, um, an evacuative force, and so on. Um, the difference between the two on in respect to ingestion has to do with the problem of whether the body is actually in some sense designed or has a purpose that the vital principle assures. Mechanists, of course, wanted to banish such a notion. Vitalists embraced um, what's called a teleological perspective, the idea that the body in some sense knows what it needs to do to preserve health. And therefore, mechanists were very much focused on body structures, various kinds of apparatuses that could uh, affect various functions like digestion, whereas vitalists believed that there was a a certain degree of impenetrable mystery in the matter of how bodily functions were accomplished because the whole process of digestion, other similar functions, uh, was assured by forces that were uh, at work without specific um, anatomical structures being identifiable. This meant then, in respect to appetite and hunger, that mechanists were more interested always in hunger than they were in appetite because they believed that certain specific structures or processes could be um, explored in relation to hunger. So that, for example, the famous Enlightenment physiologist Albert von Haller um, argued that hunger came from uh, the irritation uh, involved in stomachal movements, whereas vitalists said that hunger was something much broader and more diffuse and more mysterious than any specific um, somatic activity of that kind. So this is not an absolute division, but generally for a long period throughout the era that I study, uh, mechanists were much more interested in trying to find, it's much more in line with what we would, I think, ordinarily think of as sort of standard or mainstream medicine, looking for a bodily basis of these phenomena, whereas vitalists believed that there was something at work that was uh, in good part indefinable and that it was related to um, overall holistic body 
purposes rather than specific mechanical actions or structures. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does make sense. I got the sense in reading your book that you were a bit sympathetic to the vitalists. Oh, yes. I'm very sympathetic to them. Um, the other two books that I wrote before I wrote this one were both focused um, on a school of vitalism that was important in uh, southern France, in uh, the city of Montpellier, which was a very prominent medical center in the medieval period and maintained its prominence into the, um, oh, roughly into the 19th century. It's not that it went away, but for centuries it was a rival of Paris, and Paris eventually one out um, pretty much in terms of global reputation. In any event, I spent many years studying uh, Montpellier vitalism. And as I say at the in the introduction to the book, uh, I've never been interested in sort of the metaphysics of vitalism, but I've been very interested in the way that it uh, was a uh, biological uh, philosophical framework for uh, looking at disease. And that is because, uh, and this is one of the central problematics of the book, as you know, uh, mm -hmm. vitalists were much more interested in the individuality and variability of disease than were mechanists who were interested in trying to find uniformities and regularities that would put the uh, processes of pathology in the human body in line with other mm -hmm material phenomena studied by science, which had as its goal to find some kind of laws or at least normativities for the phenomena in question. Uh, vitalism is uh, very important in the history of psychiatry, in part because um, it was always a framework for thinking about illness that tried to find links between uh, the physical and the mental, emotional, moral. And that has been my, primarily, my primary interest in it. Um, in respect to appetite, the overall, the overarching argument of the book is that we desire to eat in the ways that we do because of an uh, extraordinarily complex cluster of influences that range from the physical to the emotional to the um, social and that therefore trying to ascribe appetite to any particular especially material process is a lost cause from the outset. So the book is a kind of a plea for thinking about appetite as an extraordinarily complex, physical, moral, holistic phenomenon. And it's, it's also a bit of a challenge to the, the notion of progress, right? That we've made so much progress in the study of appetite. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how the move to, um, you call it scientized medicine, um, influenced the study of appetite or how it's become an object of study? Yes, that's a long and um, complicated story, but it has 
at the outset principally to do with what happened to the science of physiology from around 1800. In the earliest days, physiology was a science that took as its remit the kind of mixed, blended physical and moral activities that I've been talking about. And at a certain point, the principal method that came to be regarded as valuable, indeed essential, in physiology was experimentation on animals. And the idea was that because there was a basic similarity between human beings and animals, that whatever was discovered in respect to animals could be applied to human beings as well. This, uh, the whole cluster of methods um, that were focused principally on vivisection, experimentation on living animals, but also in the field that I'm studying included such approaches as um, feeding animals certain dietary components exclusively to see what would be the effect. For example, if they were fed nothing but sugar, these are sometimes referred to as starvation studies or hunger studies. Um, this cluster of methods became uh, extraordinarily important and ultimately dominant in physiology because physiology was bent on becoming a science in the um, mode of physics and other hard, what we call the hard sciences. These methods yielded a kind of precision that was not possible by other means and the value of learning precise features of both animal and human bodies and functions um, is obvious. I never ever uh, try to deny or would deny that medicine and science have gained tremendous uh, benefits from studying uh, a variety of functions and features of living bodies by these means, although there is, of course, a large moral issue attendant on vivisection that is uh, lurking in the background that I do not focus on directly, although many other historians have. Um, in any event, these methods become uh, very important from the early 19th century, late 18th, early 19th century, and uh, eventually become dominant in physiology altogether, whereas other features that once were regarded as part of, quote, physiology that had to do with mental and emotional um, and social influences on the body and on health tended to be increasingly excluded. The process came to fruition in the later decades of the 19th century under the leadership, especially of German physiologists, who 
mapped out a physico-chemical approach to physiology that became the dominant um, uh, construction of physiology as a science. So the question I took up is, where does something like appetite fit into this kind of a model? To study appetite by experimental means um, was extraordinarily difficult. Various techniques were tried, the most important of them something that's called vagotomy, the cutting of the vagus nerves, which were thought to transmit the sensation of desiring to eat, and then watching what happened to the animals in uh, the wake of the uh, operation. For a variety of reasons that I lay out in the book, this method was unsatisfactory and much disputed, even by those who spent a lot of time pursuing it. And there were some other uh, means of trying to study appetite by purely physical operations. But generally, even the scientists who were most in favor of experimental procedures in physiology thought that they were just not right for the study of appetite, and that some other uh, method or methods had to be employed if appetite was in fact to be studied scientifically, which was itself a question uh, that was open. It, it seemed that, um, it, it struck me um, in reading the book that, um, for, for for people who were trying to study something so so in a such a purely objective fashion, there was an awful lot of um, I, I don't know sensationalism in in some of the ways that <laughs> the, um, that 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 they went about it. I'm thinking of the hunger artists here, um, the you know. Um, I don't, some of these experiments were a bit gory. I don't know. <laughs> Could you, uh, do you want to, do, do you want to, can, can you speak to that at all? Uh, yes. Well, um, I guess I'd most like to talk about the hunger artist because this is a phenomenon that many people are unaware of. Even people who have spent a lot of time studying history of science, and it's partly because the hunger artist is a figure that straddles uh, science and public performance. The hunger artist was um, a figure um, who sought fame and fortune, really, basically, by uh, self-starvation and the public performance of self-starvation so that people could watch the progress of the body of the hunger artist through a, a fast that was declared at the outset uh, to last a certain amount of time. Um, for the most part, the performances of the hunger artist were, uh, for a while, just they were just like theater, right? A kind of body mm -hmm. theater. But at a certain point, one of the most notable physiologists in my uh, study, uh, Luigi Luciani, an Italian physiologist of the later 19th century, uh, 
took up the notion that a great deal could be learned from the behavior and uh, effects on the body of long fasting of the hunger artist and did a major study um, of one of the more famous of them. At that point, then, the what had basically been a, a kind of a carnivalesque um, activity was joined with the goals of uh, science. It's a quite remarkable decision, actually, that Luciani made to study uh, this character in this fashion because it allowed for a degree of, as you call, sensationalism and uh, publicity and um, the uh, theatrical in the world of uh, science that was extraordinarily austere in its um, experimental procedures overall. Nonetheless, that's what he did. And uh, he wrote a book that is still regarded as a major entry into the nature uh, of hunger and to some extent of appetite. Um, and uh, from that point, in my telling of this story, um, there was a recognition that the kinds of things that he discovered, the most important one of which was the power or influence of what was called auto-suggestion, a psychic influence on physiological functioning, that physiological, human physiological behavior um, and activities could no longer be looked at purely from the point of view of what was going on in the organism as a physical creature, but had to be studied uh, with an eye to what was the psychic influence of this man's personality, his mental history, and the like. So that's um, uh, one of the breakthrough moments, I think, in the story of what people thought about desiring to eat, the effects of eating uh, within the framework of uh, experimental physiology. At that point, the, quote, psychic factors in uh, the urge to eat uh, began to come much more to the fore. So tell, um, can you say some more about how what you call at the beginning of the book appetite disorders and what we think of, might think of as eating disorders today came to be understood as, as psychiatric illnesses because it, it seems a little puzzling, right? If on the one hand we have this sort of mechanistic focus in uh, medical and scientific research and, and then on the other hand um, a whole way of looking at the world that says that actually maybe appetite doesn't have to do with the body at all. Maybe it's all in your head. Right. Okay. Let me first of all say something about the difference between appetite disorders and eating disorders. Okay. Uh, eating disorders, that term is a fairly recent term. The earliest usage of it I've been able to trace was um, in the early 1960s. And the term eating disorders puts the emphasis on the act of eating itself, right? So it is a behavioral construct. And the people who take it up come out of the behavioral tradition that develops uh, after 1900. So it's a 20th century um, construction. Uh, 
uh, what I call appetite disorders specifically um, has to do with instances of uh, disease or malaise of whatever kind in which the um, either principal or important accent is put on the state of the appetite itself. And so they are not coterminous, although obviously they are uh, closely uh, related um, in some sense. But the one emphasizes the state of being, the other emphasizes actual physical acts of ingestion, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so to go back to the matter of how and why um, appetite and its troubles come to be thought of as uh, psychic uh, or mental or emotional phenomena as opposed to bodily phenomena, uh, this is something that... Um, First of all, well, you know that the first chapter of the book actually has to do with the medicine of the ancients, um, and it is um, a well-established feature of ancient medicine that uh, there is an intimate relation between uh, the physical, the somatic, and the mental or emotional. Uh, So there is a traditional quote, quote, approach to thinking about certain bodily phenomena that uh, links the two in a kind of a holistic framework that's very, very old in Western medicine, although it's um, far from mainstream by now. Um, it's, It's difficult in speaking of ancient medicine even to talk about the relation between the physical mm-hmm. and the moral, mental, or emotional, because the whole concept is that the two are, is, there is no division where you have to put things together in a relation. That's a kind of body-mind dualism that comes along later in Western um, medicine and science. In any event, the uh, goal of certain physicians along around the late 18th century, early 19th century, uh, physicians who were especially interested in uh, what we now call mental illness, uh, there was a desire to try to return to some um, way of thinking about and approaching and treating disorders of this kind that would return to that holistic framework. And um, since a lot of troubles of eating are characteristic and appetite are characteristic of people who suffer pronouncedly uh, what we would call mental illnesses, Uh, uh, much of this thinking and work was done within the framework of what the French long called the mental medicine. They didn't use the term psychiatry for a long time. And there was an effort then to get at what those, uh, how those uh, two features of this kind of illness were uh, related. This um, approach was uh, undermined from around the 1820s and 1830s, even within French medicine, where it was very pronounced, when, thanks to the fact that the physicians were desirous of linking progress in their field to progress in other scientific and medical fields, Uh, began making use of 
um, a technique that's called pathological anatomy, studying disease in dead bodies on the dissecting table, hoping to find specific identifiable, quote, lesions that were responsible for the illness. In respect to, uh, quote, mental medicine, this meant especially more and more trying to find the seat of mental illness in the brain. And a range of uh, investigations were undertaken from the 1820s to the 1840s, um, and then in other contexts later on beyond, that sought a specific physical brain site for mental disorder. And this uh, project was largely unsuccessful in respect to problems of appetite and eating. It was entirely unsuccessful. And uh, therefore the um, desire to come up with a clear physicalist approach to disorders that included those of ingestion and strange desires in respect to food um, pretty much went by the board. And that meant if something was not a physical disease, it had to be some other kind of disease, right? And what options were there? Mental medicine then went in the direction of a very straightforward, what I call cerebralization, thinking of it as a matter of disordered mind and a huge bifurcation opened up between general medicine and mental medicine that in one fashion or another has been with us ever since, right? At the moment, we're in a somatizing phase. So the current desire is to try to trace uh, as many mental illnesses as possible to brain dysfunction or disorder, right? But that's something that has come and gone through history. And um, the idea then of trying to uh, discern what we would call the psychiatric foundations of troubled appetite uh, dates to the late 18th, early 19th century and has been one of the options in respect to looking at these uh, illnesses ever since. I, you you conclude um, by saying we're caught between these two process of, processes of homogenization, right? Um, and it seems like you don't think they're good things. Um, <laughs> that they, that that they're they're like that. What they have in common is that they're processes of homogenization, but that they are both trying to shape our eating disorders in these really kind of conflicting ways. Um, can you tell us a bit more about like what what are these, and and then how do and how do they emerge from the history you tell? Well, one of them does not emerge from the history that I tell. Uh, there are two processes of homogenization in respect to uh, eating patterns and desires that I talk about in the book. One of them comes from the development of the modern food industries. And that process of, process of homogenization 
is something that is tied, of course, intimately to the long-term um, economic uh, and scientific history of food uh, that sets in basically with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and becomes more and more important in recent times. Um, the homogenization there has to do with the economic uh, imperatives of the food industry. The coming of standardization of food products, the desire to um, market food products in such a way that to, as to maximize uh, profit, uh, the uh, resort to um, and uh, privileging of industrial methods of food production. All those things have mm -hmm. been studied a very great deal by historians recently. Those are part of processes that I would call food history. And uh, there are uh, scores of excellent historical works on that subject. I take that um, history, the history of food, as background to my own uh, study, and I take it for granted that uh, people are at least to some extent aware of things like the concept of industrial food and all the rest. So that's one process of homogenization that is a socioeconomic force that others have studied in great detail. And there's been a great deal of uh, interest in the methods that were used in the various industries, the environmental impact of the development of industrial food, the relations between the different parts of the global economy and, the, and those forces of production and so on. That I do not study in my book. The other process of homogenization is quite different, and it is the work, I assert anyway, that of uh, medicine and science. And that is the move to try to get away from the notion that was current from the ancient world up until uh, the 18th century, that the individual appetite what an individual desired to eat was what was best for that person. And to get toward, on the basis of the scientific studies of ingestion and digestion and all the rest, toward the idea that there are certain foods that are healthy that everybody should consume in certain quantities in order to be a healthy person. Everybody knows this because we hear about it all the time. Uh, what it is that we should be eating, what it is that we should not be eating, in what quantities we should eat things, uh, in things that we should avoid altogether, and so on. This model of eating, appetite and eating, to my mind, bears very little relation uh, to what appetite is and how it functions in human beings based on the historical study that I have undertaken. And um, the book, although by no means um, calling for, you know, an end to nutritional science or anything of that kind, attempts to uh, argue that much of the problem that we have right now that has led to, helped to engender um, 
the anxieties about eating that are more common in our world every day, I think, uh, and I think others would probably agree with that, uh, come from the fact that we're caught between these two processes, one of which aims to get us to eat things that uh, yield a profit for the food industry, and the other of which aims to get us to abide by what have been identified scientifically as uh, healthy patterns of eating, whether they accord with what people want to eat or not. So we're caught in the middle of two things that are radically different. And to my mind, the conflict between the two has helped to engender um, constant worries about what to eat how, when, and so on, um, that seem to worsen all the time. You're, no, I, I think you're, you're very careful not to give advice in this book. I don't think anyone could mistake it for a diet book, for example. <laughs> no, um, it's not a diet book. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I, but I, I wondered if you would feel comfortable saying something about whether the history... Um, that you tell, does it, does it give us a way forward, do you think? Um, a way of looking at the world, at, at this issue that might be more helpful or productive? Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, so let me say, first of all, that no, I don't give any specific advice. I think historians generally are not supposed to give advice. We're not <laughs> policymakers. We are just people who look at the past to try to figure out how we've gotten where we are on certain issues and then say people need to recognize this history and um, try to learn from it to see patterns, recurring questions, specific ways that language is used, for example, to convey uh, things when in fact the language often carries implicit um, uh, assumptions that people don't stop to think about and so on. Overall, I would say about my own study is that what I would like to encourage is a broader, more general attitude toward uh, appetite and eating that takes into account it's the complexity of those processes um, and does not try to reduce them to simple uh, formula of one kind or another. You know that one of the things that I talk about in the epilogue, which is where I attempt to say in general what I think the study has meant, um, is the danger of talking about health in relation to something, for example, like the BMI, which many people, the body mass index, are completely fixated on, and uh, which in an, an attitude that encourages people to believe that if they could get a certain right number in relation to that and other phenomena of the body as well, that that would mean that they were healthy. And... This is um, something that has been fostered by a kind of instrumental utilitarian uh, approach to the phenomena of, um, of the body-mind complex that, to my mind, is 
dangerous in all kinds of ways. And what people really, um, if they are of a mind to, (laughs) uh, could do would be to think more generally about health. Do I want to be a healthy person? Is health important to me? What exactly does it mean for me? Instead of reading endless articles that say, do this, do that, do the other, becoming more and more confused by the day, um, being dismayed by the contradictions and um, uh, anomalies in the advice that they get from various kinds of uh, experts, and instead to, to ponder the issue of health itself. I uh, follow in this um, a uh, philosopher, historian, uh, French individual uh, scholar named uh, Georges Conguillem, who uh, talks about health as being um, something that we must find for ourselves. And that's um, what basically I am pleading for in this book. Uh, And the other thing that I would emphasize is that there's also a plea here for uh, a different kind of medicine. A lot of people have very serious problems connected to eating, and they do need help, but they need help from a kind of medicine that, in my opinion, um, would be different from most of what we find, which is one that um, acknowledges the individuality of health that does not try to put people on a chart and come up with a number that will say they're healthy or they're not, and that would take into account the fact that there are many uh, phenomena of body and mind that are uh, very little understood, and to adopt a posture of humility in the face of that fact. Well, um, I, it, for this reader, it was a very effective plea, I have to say. Um, and I, I encourage all of our listeners to, to, to get a copy of the book and to check it out. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time now. I wonder if you could, I guess we, we'll, we'll just wrap up by asking, now that this book is out and published, um, and this 20 years of, at least of work <laughs> on it, it's completed. Yes. Uh, um, I have to admit to that, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> what are you working on now? What's next? Uh, I'm not really quite sure. I'm. Um, I've got a number of little projects. Um, I guess that the one that I'm the most interested in, in at the moment has come out of recent uh, scholarly meetings I've gone to that are focused on the gut mind uh, link, the role of the uh, much discussed now microbiome. Um, I am especially interested right this minute in a problem that was uh, brought up to me by um, uh, a dear friend, and that was evidence that seems to be accumulating that people uh, have a different uh, microbiome dependent on whether they were born by means of vaginal or cesarean birth. 
um, this may be old news to certain uh, medical scientific listeners, but it was certainly new to me. And um, it's something that I'm, I'm looking at uh, right now. So it sort of follows along with uh, the whole problem of the, uh, the body-mind relation in, in respect to the stomach and eating, uh, but very contemporary. I have spent most of my scholarly career working on the 18th and 19th centuries. This book, I ventured uh, with some trepidation into the 20th century, and uh, now I'm thinking maybe the 21st. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Very recent history. Well, that sounds fascinating. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you very much, Claire. I appreciate your interest in the book.